14 to 26. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, sister. Good morning, soldier. Good morning, soldier. It is so good to be with you all here this morning, and uh, if you are visiting with us for the first time, we're thankful that you're here. Uh, my name is James Westbrook, and I'm one of the pastors here at Soldier Community Church. And uh, I preach this morning with great excitement, also great soberness, sobriety, sadness. Uh, many of you all know that this is my last time addressing you all as pastor, officially, formally, from the stage. Great way to start off, James. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, I want to just tell you all thank you. Thank you from the Westbrook family. You all have played a vital role, a critical role in our formation. And as we get ready to go off to Oakland, California, we get to take with us uh, all the time that we spent with you all. Your affirmation of us, your challenging, your prayers, all of those things has been so critical to uh, getting confidence and boldness to be obedient to what the Lord has called us to. Thank you so much. Give yourself a hand of applause here, please. That's okay. That's okay. We got real Christians like now. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, I really mean that by the bottom of our hearts. Uh, let me go ahead and pray to the Lord for some help as we get ready to get into the Word of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, thank you. All good and perfect things come from above. We have so much to be thankful for. Even, Lord, when we're facing the trials that we may be facing in life, God, we know that you are there with your people. We are told in this book, count it all joy when we face various trials and tribulations. Why? Because they work for our benefit, that we may be made complete, mature. Lord, we know, Lord, that you do not leave us here as spiritual orphans. You've given us your word that we may know you. 
we may interact with you through your word and through your spirit. Lord, would you give us new life where we need new life? Would you bring someone a birth new life today as a result of coming in contact with you, creator of the universe? Lord, we ask for help. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, today I want to talk to us from the topic of faith that's evident. A faith that's evident. And we're continuing on in our series uh, on the theme of faith that works. Uh, faith works. It works inwardly and is working outwardly through evidence that something has happened in the heart of the person who claims faith, who proclaims this marvelous gospel. And, uh, and today, uh, we get to talk about something very critical and very important regarding our faith. Last week we learned, let's revisit that, that God is not a respecter of persons. Your value is not attached to what you make at the end of the year. Thank God for that. All right? Your value is not uh, attached to what your benefits package says. It's not attached to what you wear and how you dress, whatever the case is. God says that don't treat people according to what you think they make. The greatest thing about you, the most important thing about you is that you are made in an image of God. We are image bearers. And we have the opportunity to know what it means to be fully human in Christ as Christ sets the ultimate example of what it means to be a faithful child of God. Everyone is worthy of respect and dignity. We learned that last week. But we're picking up on that. And James has a very, another critical topic to talk about today. And so the task before us this morning is to differentiate. It is to differentiate between the real and the fake. The false and the true, the dead and the living. And this is uh, what Peter is after, what he writes in his letter in chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Assurance is important. Assurance is a major theme within Christianity. This is not about fear. This is not about teaching people to fear that they are actually in the kingdom of God. No, there are certain things that, that, that the Bible encourages us to do to make sure that when we say that we are standing with the Lord, when we say that we are saved and sanctified and built with the Holy Spirit, as we used to say, let's shake your head to it for the two. Saved, sanctified, built with the Holy Spirit. When you say that, there are certain things that ought to uh, accompany that claim. And the half-brother of Jesus, James, is getting at that same idea, this assurance. How do you know? And for James, you can sum it up in one word. Works. Works. It's by works that you know that you are truly in this thing, that you are truly Christian and about what you proclaim. Now, what do we mean when we say works? What we mean by that, it means righteous deeds. Simply righteous deeds. That's what we mean when we say works. And so our central focus today is this statement, faith without those righteous deeds. Faith without works is dead. That's the claim that James is making for us today. It is dead. And as a person from my camp, we don't like talking about works too much, do we? If Luther didn't talk about it, we don't want to talk about it. Oh, we want to talk about it today. Uh, James has uh, uh, some, uh, some great things to say about it. So uh, with that said, we're, we're going to look at... Uh, uh, this theme, and we're going to first start with what is a dead faith? What do I mean when I say dead faith? And then after that, we're going to look at what a, a living faith is. So let's start off in verse 14. Let's look at what James lays before us. 
He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has sinned but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? Now, James, he begins the section stating that a faith that doesn't produce works is a Christianity. And if I were to summarize it, it is a Christianity that is false, insufficient, and useless. It's false, insufficient, and useless. And essentially, you'll know what it is by definition and by experience when you see it. You'll know whether or not that faith is actually dead or alive. And so let's start off what it means when I say false. When I say it's false, it's because it presents itself as true, but it is false, and this is very dangerous. It's completely erroneous to state one's commitment to Christianity, and there's no evidence whatsoever that the faith is real. It is a dangerous thing to go under and say that I carry the banner of Christ, but there's nothing actually solidifying, providing evidence of that faith. This is not, a, this is not accepted in any other reality. You can tell a farmer by the fact that they form. You can tell a soldier by the fact that they soldier, and you can tell a Christian by the fact that they believe. No, sure. But no, you can tell a Christian by the fact that they believe in they do good works. It's all evident. It's all working together. Faith is invisible, and works make that faith visible. Faith is a lot like Wi-Fi. Yes, I said Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is invisible. You know whether or not you have a good connection with your computer based on how the thing is working. Now, when I first moved to Shelby Park, Shelby Park don't have the best internet service, if you didn't know. When I first moved to Shelby Park, I had my, my, uh, my internet working at somewhere around 20-something percent. I called them, I said, yo, y'all gotta come and fix this. They said, sir, that's the best we can do, take it or leave it. Now, I'm just oriented, so I talk to everybody in the moment too. They got it back up, but the point is, is that, listen, if, if, if you're going to give evidence, if it's going to be an evidence that the thing is working, there has to be confirmation. If they say that I got AT&T, then my Wi-Fi should be working. I need to get over this thing. <laughs> but if you say that you're Christian, if you say that we're Christian, there ought to be works that follow it. There is a pastoral concern for James here. There is a pastoral concern that people do not give themselves over into self-deception. That they do not go their whole life believing they are something that they are not because they are simply associated with something. Most likely what's happening after the Christians here are scattered all over the Roman Empire as a result of persecution. There are some that would say that, hey, I got this new teaching. This new, this new message is wonderful, it is free, and it's a message of grace. Oh, I love grace. We love grace, don't we? Grace is beautiful, and grace is necessary. Amen. But they misunderstood grace, most likely. These are people that said that, listen, you are now no longer saved. You no longer have to follow the works of the law in order to amount to, in order to stack up, in order to be right before God and keeping everything intact and doing whatever the law requires. You no longer have to do that in order to be right with God. That was never fully the case. God always said to a broken spirit, to a contrary heart, to this I will draw nigh. You have people saying that, listen, all you have to do is take in the grace of God and you're good. You don't have to work. No works. 
James said, wait a minute, that does, that's not true. No, no, no. Works has to be, they have to be um, evident. They have to be present. They have to be present. There needs to be this, this confirmation of a transformed heart that God has done great things. But it's a pastoral concern, not just for James, but for us pastors as well. For Christians as well. It's nearly 60% of the population that has been a declining percentage over the years. But now we're at 60% of Christians, in, of people in this country, self-identify as Christians. That's over 180 million people, and that does not even include those who are not polled. They self-identify as Christians. Now, you ask those people within that same polling, you ask them, what do you believe? And the polls, they show that people often believe, these self-identifying Christians believe things that are actually in opposition to the teachings of Christ. It is an important, important matter. It's important to the biblical authors because this thing that we call salvation, this thing that we call entering to the kingdom of God where we have everlasting life with our creator, it is too important to just simply wing it. Paul gets at this in Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 when he says that uh, make sure uh, make uh, sure that your salvation is sure. Make sure, he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap. And this is talking about, this is a salvific language. If your life is not evident that you are sowing uh, seeds of righteousness, then you can probably assume that the tree itself is not bearing fruit of the Holy Spirit. You have a lot of people in this world that are claiming a Jesus that doesn't claim them. Now, what am I mean by that? Behind every truth, there is a counterfeit. Behind every truth, every truth that God puts before us, there is a counterfeit. And in the same way you have Christian works through godly deeds such as love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. The enemy, our flesh, has its own works that it's giving off and putting off where we can know the tree that the fruit belongs to. Paul gets at this again in Galatians when he says that now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is not old school, scream at you type of preaching. We're not saying that you have to clean yourself up and you've got to get yourself together before you come into the church. No, the Lord wants you as you are. And the Lord wants you as busted, broke, whatever the case is, the Lord wants you there because, once again, the broken spirit the Lord is drawn to. Crying out to the Lord, Lord, I need help is what he's called, that is what he's drawn to. But when Paul, when James is using this language, oh, you foolish person, there's probably people in the church that he's writing to making these arguments that you don't need these works. And he says that, stop that thinking. He says that, listen, if, if you want to know where you belong, you can probably look at not where you visit, not where you, what you struggle with, not sins that you fall in occasionally, as James admits that we all do in James chapter 3, is where do you live? 
James is of great concern. This is of great concern as we go to the bay and you run to people that hate Christianity and hate their Christians because of things that were done in the name of Christianity that we have to be able to confidently say and reject that that is not Christian, it's not a Christian word. We have our story stacked against us as we're going to the bay of people who are able to point out to pastors and, uh, and, um, and relatives that did horrible things to them and they carried the banner of Christ. As we look in history, people bring up things in history, love pointing to what about the Inquisition? What about the Crusades? And all the horrible things that were done in the Crusades? What about slavery? And all the horrible things happening in a horrible system of slavery. That was done in the name of Christian. I don't want anything to do with your Christ. I don't want anything to do with Christianity. And we can boldly and confidently say, listen, that was not a Christian theme. It was not Christian. It does not bear the fruit of Christianity. And those that would support such a system, such systems and gross immorality and, and support it, you say that I have no confidence of their salvation. You don't have to say amen, just say ouch. <laughs> Jesus says when he's sending and commissioning people forward and commissioning his disciples forward, how would you like to have this as your orientation, orientation speech before you're sent out? He says to his disciples, he says, listen, I am sending you as sheep to be slaughtered. I am sending you as sheep to the slaughterer. Whenever you have a sheep become the slaughterer, you should probably question the genetic makeup of the sheep. It's probably not a sheep at all. It's probably sheep that like wool cloth. Without the evidence of good works, there can be no confidence that the faith claim is valid. And if a faith without works is ultimately false, any faith claim made would be insufficient. Which brings us to our second facet as we turn to the indictment on what is dead faith. It is insufficient. Verse 18. But someone would say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And they shut This is funny. He says that, listen, I want, I'm going to give you an opportunity. I'm going to get you on stage right here at Sojourn. And I'm going to stand right here. You stand right there. I want you to show me your faith. Demonstrate your faith without saying anything. Demonstrate. Go ahead, huh? I'm waiting. It's impossible. He says that, okay, well, since you can't do that, I'm going to show you my faith by my works. By my works. This is not to minimize the importance of proclamation. You need proclamation, but you demonstrate what's happening in the heart by what you do. Your works, they demonstrate what you do. What's going on inside, an inward reality. But this, this next one is, is important. He says, even the demons believe and they shut as if they imply they believe and they shut and they, and they at least give him some, some fear and trembling back up in that. There are those who will reduce Christianity to the accurate nuancing of theological propositions. And this is a huge danger for places with large Christian subcultures as well as a place that is a huge seminary town. 
This is a warning. I was, I've been in Louisville off and on for five years total. I went to seminary in Louisville. But it is a danger to reduce Christianity to some propositions, to theological nuancing, to great theological conversations. For James, if that's all you got, you don't have nearly enough. If, what, if all we do is look at the scriptures and say that uh, God calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves and, and we examine the, the, the book and we, and we talk to professors and we, we, we examine again, we look at the Greek and we see the language and we say, mm, that is really good stuff. I didn't see that before and I'm looking at it again and, and oh man, I missed this and this is wonderful stuff. I have some great emotion. But we actually don't love our neighbor as ourselves. You did not Carry out a call to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the danger that I'm doing what I need to do if I simply interact with it. He says, listen, even the demons, evil beings, they know theology as well. He says, they get this thing right. Let me tell you something. Here's a warning. You do not want to get into a debate with a demon. They will win probably every time. Deep false doctrine and what the apostles call the doctrines of demons, it does not come about because evil spirits misunderstand the truth. No, they understand the truth quite rightly. It's because they corrupt the truth. They corrupt what they know. There is no such thing, I would like to submit to you, submit to you there's no such thing as a theologically liberal demon. There's no such Demons know the strengths and weaknesses of the Wesleyan quadrilateral view. They know and believe the Nicene articulations of the Trinity in the person of Jesus. They know what accurate eschatological view to hold to. They know who's right amongst the I-mills, the pre-mills, the post-mills, and most of us in here are pan-mills, and the pan-out in the end. They know, they know that the I-mills are correct. Just throw it in there. Cool theology right there. Okay. <laughs> they know. But he says that it's not enough to simply know good doctrine, no terminology, no language to speak with. It's not enough to do that. Do not have demon faith. Now, I have to do this for my last time. Turn to your neighbor to your left and say, neighbor. Say, neighbor. Say, neighbor. Don't have demon faith. Yeah, yeah. Turn to the right and say, neighbor, don't have demon faith. Yeah. Don't have a faith that's simply reduced to proclamations and reduced to understanding without action. Christian theology says that you have to have theopraxy as well. Good doctrine and good practice going together. He says the thing is insufficient to just simply to know. And thirdly, Faith is dead because it is useless. It's useless. Let's look at that in verse 15. He says that if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not work, have, if it does not have works, it's dead. Yeah, he's coming after somebody. 
Now, I want you to notice here, he doesn't even get into the debate of what you do when you come in contact with someone who is poor, when you come in contact with someone who needs. We all have needs. I have needs. The other day, my car got hit the second time, different car. One first one was total. I'm okay with that. We recovered. And the second one got hit too. Parked in the same place. Maybe I should park my mom's name. It's a city parking. I can't park anywhere else. All right, I digress. I had a need. Someone, and I had people, Christians all over the place offering their cards. I had too many cards, okay? I, the Lord provided. We all have needs. But he doesn't get stuck on the question of when someone asks you. This is the onus is on the person who notices it. It says, when you see your brother or sister in need, poorly clothed, lacking in daily food. Okay, now let me, let me narrow this because I can, I can feel it in the room. I can feel uh, maybe there's uh, somebody's getting ready to be overwhelmed. You say, hold on, I, I, there's a lot of need out there, man. You're saying that every time that I go out, that I'm going to have to make sure that I'm providing for everybody that I see in need in order to adequately and faithfully carry these steps out. No, I'm not saying that. And I think that's what James is saying. For this context, I, this is narrowed in, zeroed in. And I think he's specifically, particularly talking about the local church. I say that because he uses language brother and sister. So let me re-say that again. If you notice somebody in your local church, if you notice somebody at Sojourner Community Church that has a need, and you notice it, they're poorly clothed, the need is evident, they are lacking in daily food. Sustenance is compromised. Something is going on in this person's life. They need something. If you notice this and you say to them, as a result of your noticing, when it particularly to your brain, and what you come out with is this. Be filled. Be warmed and filled without addressing that need. What good is that? In the Greek, it carries this, this sense that you're saying to them, in the Greek, this is lost when you can in the translation, but it carries the sense because of the voice that they're speaking in, it carries the sense that he's saying that, listen, hope it works out for you, don't ask me. I hope that works out for you, don't ask me, but I'm sure it will work out. He says that the blessing that you're giving is empty, is empty, is empty. He says that there's no goodness, is useless in that sense. The righteous deeds we do help people come into direct contact with Jesus. This is why this is so important. If we are the body of Christ, the church is literally the living body of Christ on the earth. We are his arms. We are his feet. We are his hands, his legs, his heart, his head on earth. The only way that we're going to convey and demonstrate the love of Christ and make this love tangible is by actually getting in there and actually loving people and with a love that costs. With a love that actually costs us something. That's what's at stake, that Jesus won't be seen and experienced in the proper way because we have people in the church, and we're all guilty of it, that says that that's not on me. I'm sure it'll work out. Do you feel? And this takes discernment. This is a process of self-discovery as we sit under the word of God. It says, Lord, give me discernment on what I ought to do, but we're going to lay out some things later on that we think will be a great option for us to consider and carry this call out for the local church. Perhaps we will do good in remembering the words of our Lord in Matthew chapter five. Verse 13, he says, and you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. We are the salts of the world. There are literally discussions going on right now with major denominations to get rid of language that would support helping those most vulnerable in our society and assigning it to a liberal agenda. Now, granted, I'm sure there are people that are doing stuff, doing good stuff that belong to a, a camp that does not belong to Christ. But to say that the work itself, the thing itself, is, is dishonoring to Christ, you lose your saltiness. You lose, we lose what actually gives us this relevancy in the world. We're so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. Perhaps we would do just as well to be reminded of the words of our Lord in Matthew 25. And I want to say this. When we talk about the gospel, I believe that you have those of genuine interests, with genuine hearts, that believe that once we start talking about things that doesn't sound like proclamations of the gospel, that Jesus came for sinners, that he died and rose from the third day, that by believing in that, you should be saved. That, that if the message is not that particular proclamation, then we are getting away from the gospel because the gospel is reduced to that proclamation. I believe that that is a, for some, that is a misunderstanding that I'm going to say that James is getting at right now. There's some that believe that if you talk about caring for people and caring for the most vulnerable, that somehow you're getting away from the gospel. And for some of us, this is a, this is a conversation, this is an inside conversation, and, and you're, maybe you're visiting today, like, what, that didn't make any sense. That ain't what I heard about Jesus. And you're absolutely right. Listen to the words of Jesus as he invites us to understand that the gospel is not just a proclamation of justification, but it's the message of the entire kingdom. Mark 1, that he's saying that life, this is what life is like in my kingdom. It is better than out there. The world is cold. People will take advantage of you. People will hurt you. They scheme. Horrible things happen in this world. Horrible things. And he said, in my kingdom, there is safety. There is love. There is repentance when we get in Rome. There is restoration. There is community. There's so much in my kingdom. This is the way that God's kingdom was intended to look. This is the way that society was intended to look. It's the message of the entire kingdom. What does Jesus say in Matthew 25? He says, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You did not look after me. They also answered, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty? or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you. When you with us, when did this ever happen? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. The gospel of the kingdom loves people. 
have faith that is Paul commissioned to demonstrate that love, and without it, we lose the saltiness of our salt. You can't use it on food. It's not you throwing white dust on your food. Dead faith is dead because it is false, insufficient, and useless. There's going to be some of us that's going to be here right now who are Christian that, that have made, that God, the Lord has transformed, the Lord has done so much with, and, and they know because they've seen the fruit, the, the righteous deeds coming out of them. They've seen repentance. They've seen love. They've seen the fruit of the Spirit. But they say, that, but maybe you're here and you're being convicted to say that, Lord, there are some, some dead areas in my life. There are some areas where I'm not actually demonstrating what you're able to do. There are some things that I need help on to mature in. And I can see it in the way that I treat my girlfriend. I can see it in the way that I treat my wife. I can see it in the way that I treat my friend, the relationships with my family. I can see it in the way that I, I treat those that I don't like, the person I'm taught to hate. I can see it in that way, and, and Lord, I, I, I want to be broken over the things that I know is not right. That's the invitation. It's the cry out to the Lord that he would do a work in your heart. And maybe there's someone in here right now that says, that, listen, I, I don't actually know, I don't believe I belong to this kingdom based off of how I'm living my life. The invitation to you and for you is to come into the Lord's kingdom, saying, the Lord, give me help. And so here we have, it is, it is insufficient, it's false and useless. How can we as Christians fight against such dead practices in our faith? And I think it is by simply applying two simple truths what defines a living, active faith. A living, active faith. Let's go to our first point with that. A living, active faith, we see is justification is evidenced by good works. Being made right, it's a fancy word, a fancy way of saying being made right with the creator of the world is evidenced by good works. And he brings up this example of the patriarch Abraham and then the prostitute Rahab. He brings up this example of someone who is deemed, someone who is esteemed in society, and he brings up an example of someone who is denigrated, someone who is dismissed in society. And it says that, guess what? God loved them both equally, and God worked through both of them. God redeemed both of them. The justification that he has, that he has in mind. Some of you are already thinking about this. You guys just did this series on how a person's made right. And without going into all the details, you guys said these fancy Latin terms, sola fide and sola iglesia. By faith alone and by grace alone. You said that I didn't have to do nothing to be loved by God. I didn't have to do any works to be accepted by God. All I had to do was bring myself to the Lord and he would accept me and love me if I would just call, call out to his name and say, Lord, help me believe. I want to believe. I want to trust you. Are you now saying that verses made right by their works? No, we're not. Paul, this Pauline doctrine, He's not in competition with, with James. They're not facing one another in a competition. They're back to back addressing two different issues. When James says that, listen, you're justified 
by works, he has a different type of justification in mind. He's not talking about the justification that makes one right before God. He's talking about a justification that demonstrates that rightness before God. He's, he's, he's talking about when he brings up Abraham, he's not talking about the Abraham of the tent. He's talking about the Abraham of the mountain. Okay, what do you mean, Pastor? What do you mean, Pastor? Abraham in the tent was the Abraham that met God and said, that, Lord, I, I want to I trust you. I'm with you. I'm all in. I'm all in. Lord. Whatever you want me to do, I'm going to believe you. I'm going to trust you. That Abraham was justified by faith right then and there. Later on in, in, in uh, his life, in Abraham's life, you have uh, Abraham now on the mountain. And he's told to give up the thing that's most important to him. He sold to sacrifice the thing that, that, that he held, that he wanted most of all, the thing that became an idol, the thing that he'd been praying for forever. He finally got it. He got his son. And the father, Yahweh, says, are you willing to give him to me? He says, I am. I'll give him to you. The father provided the ram in the bush and said, no, don't worry about it. That, just, that demonstrated, justification is demonstrated, it demonstrated his faith before the Lord that God had actually done a work. And we too demonstrate our trust in God by doing the good works he created us for. Secondly, we're created and justified and made right before God for good works. For good works. We know the text, we've heard the text, Ephesians 2.10, and maybe it's the first time you're hearing this. Ephesians 2.10, when you come into the kingdom of God, when you come into a relationship with God and with Jesus, Verse 10 says that, guess what? You, you don't just come and, and just to sit. He wants you, and he's going to use you. It's, it's just like use you in a, in a beautiful way, not just minimize you to what you can do for him. But he's going to put your work. He's giving you gifts. He's equipped you to be effective and to carry the gospel forth in his name. You are valuable to him, and you have something to offer people. So when you come into the kingdom of God, it says, listen, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Lord has gifted those he calls into his kingdom, and he, he sends them back out that they may do good works, that they may operate in their gifts, that they may bear the fruit of the Spirit in relationship. The imitation that we're going to have today, how can you ground this? You can ground this at a personal level. You can ground this as you're interacting with relationships. In, rela in relationship, that's where it's hardest, right? This, we attempt to, that's when we realize that we're sinners. When we, get, when we get with people, we're like, oh, man, I'm mean. You know, you get kids around, you're like, oh, I guess I'm not like this rush. <laughs> you, can, you can carry that out. You can exercise that, but you can also do it corporately. And that's what we're going to call you to today. We know that there's so many examples, there's so many people who are already doing so much beautiful things. But, but there's a corporate way to do this as well. Acts 22, 44 and 46, what does it say? When the church is just now born, when they come, uh, when the church is birthed, what happens? What's going on? And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And, by, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They, they put money together to make sure everybody was taken care of. 
That's why your tithes and faithful tithes and faithful offerings is so important because it is brought together and we're able to do more together. When you came in, you were to receive a bulletin. You're able to uh, you receive a bulletin. And we have an insert in there. Pull that insert out for us, please. And this is an invitation we want to set before you as we put our resources together to care for those who need it most, like Pastor James, who got his car hit and needed a car to drop around to do what I have to do, what I needed to do. There's some of you that says, that, listen, I didn't go to seminary. I don't have the degrees. I don't, know, I, I, I don't know if I can offer a class. And you don't need a degree to do that, by the way. But some people say that, listen, I'm, I'm never going to want to, to, to just preach before people. And, and you don't have to, you don't want to reduce church ministry and ministry effectiveness to that. God has gifted each and every last one of, of his people, and, and you have something to offer. And maybe you are working in the business field. Maybe you are working as a mechanic. Maybe you are working uh, as a janitor. Whatever the case is, God can use that. And maybe you're trying to figure out ways you can be utilized, but we have that uh, option for you right now. Over the next couple of minutes, before we do communion, we want you to look at that and say, that, listen, pastors, we get calls on a weekly basis of church members in need. How great would it be for us, as they did in Acts chapter 2, having all things in common, how great would that be for us to be able to call and say, wait a minute, I, I know what can. They agreed to dedicate five or ten hours a year, 20 hours a year to work on brake pads and do whatever needs to be done. Yeah, I, I, I know someone who is a, is, is a, uh, a cleaner and, and they can help you while you're trying to get things together in your home. I, I, I can help. We know we have people gifted and maybe that's you. Would you take the next couple of minutes to fill this out and say, listen, this doesn't commit you to anything, but at least provides the options uh, for us. And someone is going to be in contact with you over the next couple of weeks. But take the next couple of minutes to fill this out and see how you can be utilized or to your business. We don't work out of fear. We don't work to be accepted. We work because the Lord has worked on our behalf. And as a response to our love for him and how he has made us, we go and return and we do work because God made us for it. How fulfilling it is to do what you were made to do as Christians. And we're reminded of a marvelous, wonderful work every week that we meet. And that's the work that was done on behalf of sinners. Those that don't meet the qualifications to be perfect before God. Praise God for that, amen. We're reminded of this love through Jesus' work, his completed, finished work on the cross every time we meet and have communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks, and he said that, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat it. Likewise, he took the cup, he said that this is the blood of my new covenant. Take and drink. As often as you do this, do this in the remembrance of me. If you are a Christian in this place, come, rush to the altar, rush to uh, the communion stations to sup on the mercies laid before you where Christ says that, listen, you can rest because I worked. And because I work, you can work. Uh, the way we do it here at Sojourn, the wine is marked by twine, the juice is not. We have gluten-free options to my left and to your right. If you're not a Christian in this place and you say that as a result of this message, I don't think that I'm in this thing, but I want to know how can I get in this thing. 
I want to know more about this apart from just simply believing in the right thing. How do I know that this thing is true? A pastor, Christians, people that brought you, we want to talk with you. And we want to offer you uh, fellowship and community. Let's pray.